The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This episode is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas and Pfizer, Inc., AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lantheus Medical Imaging, and Merck & Co., Inc. Good evening. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to serve as a host for our educational podcast series with this specific episode titled Treatment Intensification for Advanced Prostate Cancer. Joining me today are two real thought leaders in this field. Uh, I'd like to first introduce Dr. Alicia Morgans, who is Associate Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School and Medical Director of the Survivorship Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, as well as Dr. Judd Mole, who's the James Siemens Professor of Urology at the Duke Cancer Institute and in the Department of Urology at Duke. Dr. Mole has been a researcher, teacher, and clinician in the area of advanced prostate cancer for more than 30 years. So first of all, uh, Alicia and Judd, uh, again, thanks so much for carving some time uh, late in the day here to do this. Really appreciate the fact that uh, everyone puts in a full day at work and uh, takes some time on the back end of the day to juggle uh, this along with everything else in life. So thank you both. Thank you Thank for the you. invitation. So, um, you know, we're really going to be talking about um, advanced prostate cancer, and, and, and the title of the podcast is Treatment Intensification. Um, and, and we're going to cover several different areas, and we'll walk our listeners through sort of different um, aspects or different elements of advanced prostate cancer. But maybe, um, Alicia, I'll start off with you. And, and I feel like before we sort of jump into treatment of these different entities, maybe just walk us through the, the verbiage and the terminology. You know, what is um, hormone sensitive versus um, uh, castrate resistance? What is M0 versus M1? And, and we're going to be talking about these throughout the program, but maybe it would be a really nice way to start just to level set our audience. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to start, especially since the term advanced prostate cancer is what we apply when we're kind of using a grab bag terminology that can sort of capture a ton of different disease states as we really kind of disentangle the heterogeneity that is prostate cancer. So, um, so within advanced prostate cancer, as you said, there is hormone sensitive prostate cancer and castration resistant prostate cancer. Hormone sensitive prostate cancer is the term that we use when we have essentially not treated a patient with hormonal suppressive therapies or androgen deprivation therapy, and we expect that they will have a decline in PSA and a suppression of their disease progression when we apply ADT or androgen deprivation therapy. It is um, something that we define by their response. So if they do not respond, or if over time with the addition of androgen deprivation therapy, they have progression of disease demonstrated by a rising PSA and radiographic progression of their prostate cancer, that is castration resistant prostate cancer, meaning that the prostate cancer cells are able to grow, spread, cause trouble 
despite being hit with androgen deprivation therapy. I would say that our current definition suggests that castration resistance evolves after GnRH agonist or antagonist therapy or, or um, bi bilateral orchiectomy, that sort of backbone androgen deprivation therapy alone. We are not defining it by um, tre treatment resistance that can evolve when you have ADT and an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor. But I, you know, obviously we are moving those things earlier and earlier in the disease setting, but tr traditional castration resistance is resistance to androgen deprivation therapy with a GnRH agonist or antagonist or bilateral orchiectomy alone. And then your other question, um, you know, M0, M1, it's important to understand and to recognize that this is non-metastatic by traditional or old-fashioned uh, conventional imaging, bone scans, CTs, MRIs. Um, and then M1 is any radiographic evidence of metastatic disease defined by CTs, bone scans, or MRI. PSMA PET is not included in the definition of M1 or M0. And so you can actually have M0 negative disease or no evidence of radiographic disease by CT, MRI, or bone scan, but have PSMA PET positive disease, that's still M0 by our traditional definition. And that is a really confusing, but really important distinction, not necessarily because we don't understand the disease, but because we have different applications of therapies and understanding of clinical trial results in those different settings. Yeah, that, that's really super. I think you, you did a remarkably good job of distilling down what I think is often a very confusing thing uh, to, right out of the gate, especially um, this definition of M0 versus M1 in this era where PSMA-based PET imaging has become so ubiquitous in, in how we image high-risk prostate cancer uh, and, and, and obviously recurrent prostate cancer. So maybe, Judd, I, I turn it over to you. Um, I feel like the scenario that most urologists see right out of the gate are these patients that perhaps we've done a radical prostatectomy on and, uh, and uh, they had perhaps a biochemical recurrence and, and maybe they've even had salvage or adjuvant radiation therapy. And now they have recurrent disease. I mean, they have recurrent disease as evidenced by a PSA rise. I think that's like, you know, part and parcel. That's what we see in urology and, and almost every urologist at some point in their career will see this. Talk to us a little bit about um, the thought process on this disease state. How should we be looking at it? Um, are there risk groups that we should be thinking about and how does that sort of dictate treatment? That's a great question, Jay. And that is something that all of us as urologists see, especially, you know, those of us who manage prostate cancer. Um, PSA recurrence has now been around for about 25 years. When you think of our history, uh, the first review article on biochemical recurrence that came out in the Journal of Urology was in the year 2000. And so we've come, we've come a long way since then over the last 20 some years. So the key message is we have to risk stratify biochemical recurrence and that many of the patients that we see as urologists are lower risk biochemical recurrence. In other words, these are the guys who have just a slowly rising PSA, a smoldering PSA, and some of those men don't even have a biochemical recurrence. And that sounds weird, but you know, when these PSAs are sometimes below 0.5 even, especially if they had intermediate risk disease, 
we can see a benign PSA rise due to just residual prostate tissue that was left in situ. So that's a really important distinction, especially for urologists in trenches who are seeing uh, their own surgical patients or you know, others in their practice that not every detectable PSA indicates a cancer recurrence. On the other hand, patients who have a PSA above 0.5 almost always have a cancer recurrence. And especially if that PSA is rising at a, a fairly decent clip, and also if they had adverse pathology originally in their uh, biopsy or their radical prostatectomy specimen, then we have to take that very seriously. So risk stratify biochemical recurrence would be the number one message. And so uh, when you look at risk stratification and you, you've really highlighted um, the low risk and the high risk groups, uh, maybe I'll start with you and say, talk to us a little bit about um, the low risk patient. So that patient, you, you described that smoldering PSA, uh, the velocity of change is, is relatively um, uh, slow. It's not a steep increase. Uh, maybe their pathologic features or prostatectomy were, were favorable, uh, intermediate risk. Um, how, how do you manage those? And, and, you know, if you survey them, what's your algorithm and, and when, what's your threshold to initiate perhaps therapy? So PSA doubling time is one of the most important factors in biochemical recurrence. Uh, either, and when what we should be doing is actually entering our PS, the post-op PSAs or post-radiation PSA and the dates of those PSAs into a, usually an online calculator to actually predict, uh, you know, uh, calculate the doubling time. And, you know, studies over the last uh, 20 years have generally indicated that a PSA doubling time greater than 12 months for sure is considered lower risk. And those patients are many times best managed with active surveillance. If you can talk the patients off the ledge, I mean, these patients are many times totally freaked out by their rise PSA. And so one of the jobs we definitely need to do is, as a responsible urologist is try to make sure patients understand that they're not, it's not any sort of immediate death sentence. And we really need to try to um, re reassure them. On the other hand, um, studies have shown that a PSA doubling time less than about nine months was a predictor of worse disease. And they built on from that, there was, uh, you know, PSA doubling time less than three months was really serious. PSA doubling time less than six months was pretty serious. And a PSA less than nine months was serious enough to at least consider androgen deprivation therapy. So, uh, Alicia, talk to us a little bit about that, that using some of the criteria that Judge just mentioned, this doubling time concept, and we get to the high risk group. Maybe talk to us a little bit, if you don't mind, about um, obviously some of the new data. Uh, I think the Embark trial is certainly uh, sort of what many people call a game changer with regards to how we think about this disease state. Maybe talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. So um, this study really focused on high risk biochemical recurrent disease. So conventional imaging, CT, bone scan, MRI was negative for radiographic evidence of disease. But these patients had been treated for localized prostate cancer in the past and had a rising PSA. And the PSA doubling time for patients in this study was nine months or less. So this was, as Dr. Mole said, really a 
high-risk patient population that we know as clinicians is going to result in metastatic disease at some point in the near future. It's very different than the, the patient who had a prostatectomy you know, 10 years ago, and now is a PSA doubling time of 24 months. I mean, this is a very, very different group. Um, in this trial, patients were randomized to treatment with uh, a GnRH agonist, luprolide, versus luprolide and enzalutamide, versus actually enzalutamide alone. And all of these arms were, or both of these arms with enzalutamide were compared to GnRH agonist uh, luprolide alone. So in this study, we found that it was really, really uh, it, it beneficial to patients in terms of, of metastasis-free survival to have enzalutamide in their treatment. So if they had GnRH agonist luprolide plus enzalutamide versus luprolide alone, or just enzalutamide, they had a superior metastasis-free survival over time over in this, in this study. I, I think it was the first time that we really had a large registration trial that looked at enzalutamide alone. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. It was also the first time that we had a biochemical recurrent hormone sensitive trial that showed a benefit to patients in a meaningful endpoint like metastasis-free survival. I think there have been multiple, not failed, no trial has failed. I mean, we just don't necessarily answer the question in the trial, but there have been multiple trials where we haven't been able to answer the question of whether GnRH agonist treatment alone is actually gonna be beneficial, continuous or intermittent for patients with biochemical recurrence in the hormone sensitive state. And this really showed if we are in that hormone sensitive state, if we have this high risk population, we need to probably add enzalutamide if we're going to use GnRH agonist treatment with luprolide or something similar, or even at a minimum, add enzalutamide. What's also really important to remember in this trial is that we saw some interesting safety profile signals that I think are going to be important for patients as they're making decisions. Um, and, and also just to acknowledge their overall survival data in this trial is not yet mature. So there actually may be a survival advantage to this intensification of treatment, as we saw in the castration-resistant non-metastatic setting. We just have to wait for that data to mature. But I think the enzalutamide GnRH agonist therapy combination, very similar safety profile to what we would expect. And the enzalutamide treatment alone has a lot of the hormonal symptom stuff that we would expect, fatigue, hot flashes, those kinds of things. But there was a rate of gynecomastia in this setting where we had enzalutamide unopposed because, of course, we are using an antagonist against the androgen receptor. We're actually causing testosterone levels to go up. That actually causes an increase in peripheral aromatization of estrogens, and it can cause gynecomastia. We know this from bicalutamide trials long ago. But um, this is something that happened in over 40% of patients in the enzalutamide alone arm and I think is going to be potentially really important in patients' decision-making as they go forward. But either way, treatment with enzalutamide in this setting alone or with a GnRH agonist was superior to treatment with luprolide alone. Really, really important in this high-risk population. You know, it's interesting if you um, go back to, as, as uh, Dr. Morgan's mentioned, the bicalutamide studies, I'm old enough to remember when we were doing those, they were, it was bicalutamide monotherapy to dose of 150 milligrams and gynecomastia was a big deal. In fact, uh, at the time I was working at Walter Reed and, and we were working on a project actually to do some kind of very sophisticated mammography on men to try to measure volumetrically how much breast growth that they had had. And then, well, that never, Bicalutamide monotherapy never really took off 
uh, probably, who knows, maybe it wasn't as effective. Uh, we had these side effect issues. Uh, it'll be very interesting now to see, you know, 20, 15, 20 years later, if enzalutamide monotherapy actually, you know, stands the test of time and, and becomes a durable treatment option. Um, you know, we used to do prophylactic breast irradiation very commonly in that era. And I remember it was always, you had to do electron beam radiation therapy because it had to be very uh, superficial to deal with the, uh, the whatever component of the breast that was growing. And so, you know, history repeats itself. Are we going to be going back to teaching all the urologists that they have to do prophylactic breast irradiation? And you were supposed to start before you started the therapy. And so I don't know in this modern era now with enzalutamide, if you could, do you only prevent it if you do it beforehand? So uh, I'm going to sort of change gears a little bit and, and I'm, I'm going to sort of go through a few different scenarios with you both and, and hopefully the important messages that our listeners should go home with. Obviously, we spent a lot of time on on the first, and I think that's really important because a lot of our audience are urological practitioners, and that's kind of the disease state that they're going to see at least the greatest number of patients. But maybe, Alicia, now I'm going to um, uh, transition over to you for uh, the M1. You talked about M0 versus M1, and now let's talk about the, the M1 patient. So it has radiographic evidence of metastasis on conventional imaging that's hormone-sensitive. And I, I feel like the, the theme continues to be... Um, uh, ADT monotherapy is overused, um, and, and we haven't quite affected as much change as we would like with regards to um, maybe complementing or, or really using combination therapy. Maybe give us some of the data and information on that, and, and what should we be doing in this disease state? Thank you so much for bringing this up, Jay. So just to emphasize, ADT alone is no longer the standard of care. I will start and end my conversation and my answer with that because that is so important to recognize. ADT alone, not an option unless there is a patient comorbidity, patient preference, patient refusal, that they will not take anything more. There have been multiple studies repeatedly over the years that show that ADT with either chemotherapy or an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor is associated with improved overall survival, improved every endpoint related to disease control, and maintenance or improvement in quality of life as compared to ADT. So not only disease efficacy control um, is, is improved, but quality of life and patients feel better by their own report, not just by the adverse event profiles in these clinical trials. So really we need to emphasize that. There's also a suggestion that we could do for the most aggressive cancers, the, the de novo metastatic, the high volume metastatic, that we can actually use triplet therapy with ADT, chemotherapy, and either darolutamide or abiraterone and improve these patient control outcomes. So efficacy, and probably uh, patient-reported outcomes and quality of life as compared to ADT and docetaxel. So it's not necessarily the, the, the comparator that you would expect or hope for, which is ADT and an ARSI, but at least compared to ADT and docetaxel, if you are going to use ADT and docetaxel, add on darolutamide or abiraterone because you will have better disease control and probably improved at, or at least maintained patient-reported quality of life. So I think... As we're thinking about this metastatic hormone sensitive state, we just need to stop thinking about ADT alone. 
Um, and we really need to think about at least adding an AR signaling inhibitor, abiraterone, apalutamide, enzalutamide, or ADT, docetaxel, and one of those, um, either abiraterone or darolutamide, to really get the best disease control. And we use patient characteristics and we use some disease characteristics to help make those decisions, but we cannot use ADT alone anymore. So, so Judd, sort of a parallel um, sort of question to that is clearly um, ADT no longer the standard of care. Um, doublet therapy via any one of the mechanisms that Alicia mentioned uh, clearly needs to be part of the discussion. And now even triplet therapy for these high-risk cancers. So maybe just, you know, I, I think as we look at these, we're moving a lot of these drugs earlier in the disease state, right? You know, five years ago, they all used to be in the, the CRPC state. Now we're moving them to the hormone-sensitive state. Now we're giving maybe two, maybe three agents. Can you talk just a little bit about... Um, you know, this concept of financial toxicity, the cost associated with these patients, um, really getting all of this therapy and a high burden of therapy up front, and maybe some thoughts on that. Uh, that That's a great question or great, great comment. And I do believe that that is partially responsible for why ADT alone is still being used more than it should be. Um, historically, Urologists have known about combined androgen, what we used to call combined androgen blockade or maximal androgen blockade since 1989 when Crawford's original flutamide paper came out. And then we had bicalutamide and nilutamide. And unfortunately, those were slight, were, were not as potent oral agents as what we have today. And I don't know if this is true or not, but even in that era, uh, the uro many urologists were skeptical, and rightly so in that era, because the survival benefit was at most modest. So I wonder if the still some of it is just due to a holdover effect from combined the old combined androgen blockade. What we have to get the message across to today's urologist is, you know, today's combined androgen blockade is not your father's or your grandfather's combined androgen blockade. And these new agents are much more potent and have clearly delivered the survival benefit that we had all hoped for 30, 25, 30 years ago. But the financial toxicity is real. Um, there was a recent very good financial analysis that came out uh, looking at the cost of these drugs. Um, and what they found was, is that from a, a pure uh, financial standpoint, uh, the, the combination of ADT plus abiraterone acetate was the most cost effective since that's going to be a generic. Uh, followed by ADT plus docetaxel. But the problem now is, is that my understanding, and, and Dr. Morgans can correct me if I'm wrong, but we're not supposed to just give ADT plus docetaxel, where if you're giving docetaxel, you're always supposed to combine it with Abby or darolutamide. So, and the most expensive was the combo, triple combo with darolutamide uh, and docetaxel and ADT. And, and they were, I mean, it's substantial. The cost was uh, for the most expensive was like over $600,000. I mean, over a half of, you know, a lot of, a lot of money. Um, 
But from a practical standpoint, I'll just final thing I'll say is, is that urologists need to uh, learn if they're going to do this in their office, they have to partner with either one of their nurses or specialty pharmacy or uh, have some internal staff to help negotiate to get some of these uh, drugs approved. And maybe and that's a barrier too, especially maybe some of the smaller practices. I would love to just comment on that for just a minute. I, I think that when we are in the real world and we're treating these patients, um, it is it is hard to say that ADT docetaxel plus something should not be should be a barrier to giving at least ADT and docetaxel. And I, I hear you, Judd, and I have had patients who have had financial barriers and we couldn't even get we could not get any androgen receptor signaling inhibitor for that patient. Um, not even necessarily a triplet combination. It was even in the setting where we needed doublet. And I have had patients who said, you know, this is my financial situation. I appreciate your coupon, but I cannot pay for abiraterone, even, even though it is generic. And in those situations, if that patient is chemo fit, I would, I would use ADT and docetaxel alone. And the guidelines no longer include that from an NCCN perspective, but I think the European guidelines actually still do. And part of that is related to this financial barrier. And I think it's important for us to recognize that for our patients and not stop at ADT if we can get coverage at least for docetaxel in those settings. But I think for most patients, we can at least get abiraterone given that it is now generic and we have coupons and at, I've been surprised. I mean, they could fill it at the local stop and shop here in Boston, which is a pharmacy in a grocery store. So that to me is progress because it's, it used to only be FedEx delivery, you know, $10,000 a month, whatever it was. So I think we're making progress, but that progress has not extended to everyone. And for patients who cannot get it, but they can still get docetaxel, I would say ADT docetaxel for chemofit patients with high volume metastatic, de novo metastatic disease is still an option and we should still try to do better for them than ADT. Uh, that's really, really well said. And so, you know, we're gonna spend maybe the next 10 minutes talking about um, the CRPC state and, and M0 and M1. But I, I feel like, Alicia, you gave a really important message, which is really ADT monotherapy should not be considered standard of care. I, I think the other important message, and maybe Judd, I'll have your thoughts on this before we go to the CRPC discussion, because I think we are going to start talking about some novel agents. And, and you know, some of these novel agents, in part, are predicated on the importance of, of germline testing, this patient population. So maybe talk a little bit about that and, and what are the guidelines for, obviously, these patients with advanced prostate cancer and the recommendations for germline and or somatic testing of tumors? That's a great question. And, and first off, I would say, I mean, there's a great unmet need. Um, apparent, roughly only about a third of patients who are eligible for testing are currently getting tested. In other words, the guidelines say that if a patient presents at a urologist's office with metastatic prostate cancer, they should get uh, germline or somatic testing or both to look for inherited mutations. And only about 35% of patients that's currently being done. And I understand it. I mean, it's hard. I mean, even in an academic practice, um, we're busy and we don't always have time to do everything we should do. So it's a challenge um, in many of our offices, uh, even at a cancer center, I I struggle sometimes in real 
world clinic to actually get my nurses to help me do some of these things. And I'm embarrassed to say that, but it's really true. So I can understand that this is, this is going to be a barrier. On the other hand, um, we got like, uh, we, we have like what four or five PARP inhibitors approved already. And, and these really novel agents that I know Dr. Morgans is going to talk about. And so um, at least what 10 to 15% of our patients uh, are going to be, have something actionable that might be found. So maybe Alicia, we'll, we'll start, you know, with that. And I think that's sort of the second really important message for a lot of our urologic practitioners is, is really to think about this concept of germline testing, somatic testing, and how that might inform decisions. So let's talk about M0, um, castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Um, you gave us a really nice definition right out of the gate of what disease state and what's the clinical scenario when we're, we're dealing with M0 CRPC. How do we treat this and what should we be doing now? Sure. So, um, you know, we actually have three approved agents for M0 castration-resistant prostate cancer. Again, to reiterate, these patients can have a positive PSMA PET, but should have no evidence of measurable disease, either on bone scan, CT scan, or MRI scan. Um, but again, most of these patients actually should have a positive PSMA PET. And, and in one study, it was 98% of patients who met the criteria for negative radiographic imaging by CT, bone scan, and MRI, who actually had positive PSMA PET. The patients in the trials all had a PSMA, or a PSA, I should say, doubling time of 10 months or less, and then that no measurable disease by scan. Um, and I think in the approval process, this actually was a blanket approval, does not depend on PSA doubling time. Um, but when I try to choose between um, treatment or no treatment, I am usually choosing to intensify treatment with one of the approved drugs, that's apalutamide, enzalutamide, or darolutamide for patients who have a PSA doubling time of 10 months or less, because that was the population that was included in the trial. In, this tri in these trials, patients had a longer time to metastasis, so a longer metastasis-free survival. And importantly, that earlier intensification as, composed, uh, as compared to the control arm, where most patients ended up getting treated with an AR signaling inhibitor at some point in time, there was actually an overall survival and benefit for these patients as well. So the earlier intensification could not be made up for by later intensification of treatment when the patients had M1 or metastatic by conventional imaging, CRPC. So we have to do it early in order to gain that benefit. The longer we wait, the less the benefit will be. So in a moment, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the, the details on how you treat M1. But Judd, practically speaking, uh, obviously, uh, the, the conversion or, or the delineation of M0 and M1 is predicated on imaging. Just tell our listeners practically, what are your thresholds? How often do you image patients? Um, obviously, these two states are defined by imaging. What is the cadence that one does it? What is the threshold? Is it PSA driven? Is it certain amount of time on therapy driven. Just talk about that. And then maybe we'll talk about some of the treatment for M1 CRPC. So in, in my practice, you know, I have a large cohort of surgical patients and radiation patients that I follow. And so some of those patients end up on ADT for a biochemical recurrence. Now, up until recently, it's standard ADT for PSA recurrence and no enzalutamide was used. Now it's changing with the Embark trial, but assume it's just ADT. Um, 
when these guys have a, a low PSA, um, I had followed the uh, radar guidelines, which is a, a series of uh, expert opinion, mainly from experts in the field on when to image. And uh, typically using traditional imaging, bone scan and CT, uh, we were not typically imaging PSA recurrence until the PSA hit about two because the odds of finding anything were so low. So you'd typically do bone scan and CT when the PSA was 2.0 or higher and then four point, then it, when it doubled to four and then eight. Um, and usually the you didn't find anything because the bone scans and CAT scans didn't find anything. Now, most patients will actually get a PSMA PET. I mean, I, and I, we find that the PSA PET is, the, is really commonly used in biochemical recurrence. Um, the weird part is, is that when the PSA is less than half of a point, even now the PET scans are not very accurate. So I really struggle with that. And I really try to resist using the resources of a PSMA PET until the PSA hits about 0.5 or 0.6. I know that's controversial and other people do it earlier. Um, but I found, I just, you know, just to follow up on what Dr. Morgan said, it's really interesting. And I actually had not heard it articulated as she had that we're supposed to disregard the PET scan results in this, in this setting and, and treat these patients as M0. I think that I, I think that makes sense to me. And but I'll bet you out there, most urologists would not distinguish and they would just call anytime they see a positive pet, they're going to put in their progress notes that he's now metastatic or M1. So I'd be interested in, you know, that's, that's a really interesting thought. So I, I think it's, it's so important because it, for these patients in order to justify treatment intensification in a lot of practice or in some practices, perhaps if there's a review of those strategies to image the patient, they may say, oh, they're non-metastatic. So you need to sort of say that they're still non-metastatic in order to get things like darolutamide, which might not be approved in the MCRPC space. So if we're in CRPC, we only have specific drugs that we can use, abiraterone and zalutamide. If we want to use darolutamide or apalutamide in that space, we actually have to show that they are non-metastatic by conventional imaging, even if they're metastatic by PSMA PET. And we, I think it's important that there was this study done um, by Fendler and colleagues that showed that 98% of these patients will actually have some measurable disease by PET. So it's it's not unexpected that their PET will be positive. It's, it's expected that it will be positive. The way I use a PET in that situation, because I still use them just like you do and like everyone else these days, is I will intensify my systemic therapy and I will use the drug that's best for the patient and I will call them metastatic or non-metastatic based on the drug that I want to use. Um, so, you know, interpret that as you will. You know, you, you pick the drug you want to use for that patient for the reasons that you're justifying that and, and interpret it that way. And then we will add SBRT if there are only a couple of lesions to see if we can radiate every PSA, PSMA positive lesion and meaningfully change the trajectory of the disease? We actually don't know. That is a complete question mark. Um, in the setting of not using systemic therapy, radiation of all identifiable lesions by PSMA PET in the Oriole study, in the STOM study, seemed to change the trajectory of disease. It prolonged the time to treatment with systemic therapy, and it also prolonged the time for progression in the Oriole study. So if we can change the trajectory and also intensify treatment and prolong survival, 
maybe we can do better with both. And there are clinical trials that are trying to figure this out. But that's how I use a PET in this setting. I try to use it to identify areas that I can use targeted radiation therapy, but I always intensify therapy unless there is a either a medical reason or a patient preference reason to not do that, because I know that intensification of therapy in this setting can prolong survival. So Alicia, maybe to, in the last four or five minutes here, uh, which is almost impossible to do, which is summarize this sort of last disease space, this M1 CRPC. And, and you know, we talked a little bit about germline testing. I think Judd mentioned PARP inhibitors. Obviously, we have theranostics now. Maybe give us a little bit of a sense. I feel like at most places, the, the, these patients are really managed in the world of medical oncology, by and large. There might be some exceptions, but really, by and large, medical oncologists are really at the forefront of this you know, M1 CRPC state. Talk, talk to us a little bit about some of the therapies out there and, and maybe some of the studies that are, that are coming out of this space. So uh, really happy to do that. Uh, I would say that because almost half of patients in the U.S., or, or maybe half, maybe a little bit more, are being treated with ADT alone, patients entering the M1 CRPC setting actually are often in the urologist's realm. Mm -hmm. And the urologists can play a huge role in trying to make sure that these patients have the treatments that they can benefit from and, and the treatments that they need. So for patients with HRR mutations, particularly BRCA2 mutations, but also BRCA1, um, as well as other HRRs, and I'll get to where that's important, um, these patients can have treatment intensification with a PARP inhibitor and an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor if they've come out of an ADT alone type setting to really improve survival as compared to an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor alone. And just to emphasize the importance there, when you have ADT alone as your hormone sensitive setting or your biochemical recurrent setting, the standard of care is currently an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor in first line MCRPC. And if you can improve on that, you are actually massively changing the landscape and also really, really helping these patients. So currently there are three studies that show that there is a benefit to combination of a PARP plus an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor in these patients. The combinations are talazoparib and enzalutamide, abiraterone and olaparib, and abiraterone and niraparib. And these are approved for patients who have BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations for the olaparib and abiraterone and niraparib and abiraterone combinations. And for HRR mutations, it's a broader indication for patients with enzalutamide and talazoparib combination. And I think that what's so important to recognize is that those patients with BRCA1, BRCA2, and HRR mutations generally have a poor prognosis anyway. And so if you can improve on the standard of care, which is an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor and first-line MCRPC by adding a PARP as appropriate per these trials, that's a huge benefit for your patients. And you have to do the genetic testing to your point, Jay. You have to look at germline and somatic BRCA1, BRCA2, and other HRR mutations in both germline and somatic settings in order to identify the full complement of patients who may actually benefit from this intensified strategy. Can, can I ask a question to uh, Dr. Morgans about the somatic testing and liquid biopsy? Uh, do you, so for example, a, a urologist trying to get a handle on this, uh, is there a, 
is there a go-to accurate way to do this from like circulating free DNA that's act that actually can have a reasonable chance of giving us the answer? Yes. And thank you so much for asking the question, Judd. So I, I think as a purist medical oncologist years ago, I said to myself, oh my gosh, I'm always going to use tissue. I am always going to get a new biopsy and I'm always going to use tissue. And that is the gold standard. And that's what I'm going to do. But obviously in practice, that is not practical. It's not going to happen for many of our patients, older patients, patients with bone only metastases, patients who just refuse a biopsy, patients who have minimal metastatic disease, whatever it is. And so ctDNA blood-based liquid biopsy is a standard and is actually something that we can and should be using in our practices. And I use it all the time. In fact, ordered one today. But the important thing to know about these liquid biopsies is that you have to do it when the disease is progressing, not when the disease is shrinking. So for example, if you have a patient with metastatic hormone sensitive disease and you have started that patient on androgen deprivation therapy and now you've added an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor and the PSA has gone from 45 to two, this is not the time to send a liquid biopsy because the circulating tumor DNA from that patient is going to be minimal and your risk of false negative is really high in that patient. If you see a patient with progression of disease after initial treatment for metastatic hormone sensitive disease or new metastatic hormone sensitive disease, this is the time to get a blood sample and to send your circulating tumor DNA because now the disease is progressing, it's growing, it is shedding DNA and you have a much higher chance of capturing tumor related DNA and then being able to really sequence that and make some sense of that from a next generation sequencing standpoint. So that is the key message that I would, would offer. You do not want to do this after you have a patient in remission or a patient in response. You want to do this when the disease is growing, when the disease is new, when it's untreated, when it's minimally treated, when you can really capture a large quantity of circulating tumor DNA and ensure that the answers that you get are going to reflect the, the, the disease and not be confounded by a false negative reading. That's great. Thank you. Well, I want to um, sort of finish the program by, first of all, thanking you both. Uh, uh, Judd, Alicia, really uh, uh, very much enjoyed the discussion. I think you, you really distilled down what I feel like can be a fairly intimidating topic, especially when you go beyond, you know, ADT alone for most urologists and urologic practitioners. Uh, I, I think you really uh, very cogently summarized a lot of the data. I would tell that uh, for our listeners that uh, both Dr. Morgan and Dr. Mole have compiled some references, which will be on AUA University, that for those of you that want to sort of take a deeper dive, read about some of the studies that they're talking about, uh, there's sort of an ample opportunity to do that. But uh, Judd, uh, Alicia, first of all, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate the thoughtfulness. Uh, and really appreciate you joining us uh, on this podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you very much. It was a great honor and pleasure. Uh, for our audience, for any more information, please visit auanet.org slash university. Uh, again, uh, Judd, Alicia, uh, happy, uh, happy Thanksgiving in advance. Holidays to both of you. And uh, I hope to see you both soon sometime in person. Excellent. Very good. Thank you. Thank you.